everyone, and thank you again for joining to another edition of Through Conversations Podcast, the platform for the most brilliant minds. In this episode, I'm joined by Angela Saini. Angela Saini is an award-winning British science journalist and broadcaster. She presents science programs on the BBC, and her writing has appeared in New Scientist, The Sunday Times, National Geographic, and Wired. Her latest book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, was a finalist for the LA Times Book Prize and named Book of the Year by The Telegraph, Nature, and Financial Times. Her previous book, Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, has been translated into 13 languages. Angela has a master's in engineering from the University of Oxford and was a fellow at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In this conversation, we talked about her newest book, Superior, The Return of Race Science, and many ideas that surround her book, including the nature versus nurture debate. How should we define progress, genetics, creeping ideologies in science, and much more. Hi, Angela. I really thank you for being here in this edition of Two Conversations podcast. After reading your book, I was mind blown and it was an eye opener honestly and you begin with a with a an amazing quote and i would like you to expand on it you begin by saying that this book is for your parents the only ancestors you need to know <laughs> why <laughs> it's a bit tongue in cheek because obviously i do have grandparents or at least i did have grandparents have all passed away sadly i do have extended family but i think um one of the core themes in superior is the question of uh, origin and belonging um, and I think I mean we have I think as individuals many layers of uh, belonging we have our immediate families we have our extended families we have the nation that we live in and sometimes also we have an attachment to our race or our ethnicity um, and when I finish writing superior although I completely understand and I also share in the feeling of um, patriotism, if you want to call it that, or an attachment to the nation that you live in, and also to some extent an attachment to your cultural background, whatever that might be, if it's different from the nation that you live in, um, or your cultural history or ancestral history. Ultimately, I think we are really, in the end, only a product of our experiences, our personal experiences. Everything else lives in our imagination it's our experiences that really shape who we are and how we think about things and as the child of immigrants so I didn't grow up around my extended family I grew up with my parents only uh, as the you know my immediate family um, for me they were everything you know they shaped who I am um, my ideas about the world they are where I draw much of my culture from I also get it from the society I live in But, you know, in those formative years, they were the only ancestors I really needed to know. And so I wrote that at the beginning, that dedication, really kind of puncturing this idea that there is a lot beyond that. I don't think there is much beyond that, if I'm honest. I, I think just, just with this beginning statement, uh, there's just all of these topics that you mentioned are broadly covered in your book superior it makes me my mind just runs around the question of how 
our genetics involved with us being the product of our experiences and how do we understand the relationship between us growing as individuals and us growing in a certain society we've all tried to understand that ourselves are only rooted in our genetics in our biology and then we unfold as our experiences dictate but for you is if i'm getting on correctly it's the other way around it should be first experiences and then some genes unfold i think it's a combination of both one of the mistakes i think we have made and one of the reasons that we make this mistake is that sir francis galton who was the scientist it was a cousin of darwin and he came up with um eugenics mm -hmm. this kind of pseudo scientific theory that a population can be improved if you encourage certain people to breed and other people not to breed so yeah. he coined this phrase nature versus nurture mm -hmm. And we still live with that now. We still talk about it quite regularly in academic circles, in mainstream life. We think of these two kind of dichotomous things that are almost separate to each other, nature and nurture. Mm -hmm. And one of the aims of biology, human biology, is to get to the root of nature by somehow eliminating the effects of nurture. And the point I wanted to make in Superior that I also tried to make in my previous book, Inferior, which was on women, is that these two things are not separate. They're yes. completely intertwined. Um, they affect each other profoundly um, in ways that we're only just starting to get a handle on. So, for example, one of the recent discoveries in neuroscience is when we compare the brains of humans to other primates, um, one of the biggest differences we see, we don't see that many differences, but one of the big differences we see is plasticity. So human brains are incredibly mm. plastic, even into adulthood, wow. uh, which, many, which other primates do not show that degree of change. And I think um, it's possible, or at least this is a theory, that that degree of plasticity explains so much of the human variety that we see around us in terms of culture and society. So culture and environment is shaping us not just kind of as a layer sitting on top of biology, but it's actually shaping our brains. Our <laughs> brains themselves are being molded and manipulated by the cultures that we're in. Um, bonds are being formed in certain ways. Connections are being formed in certain ways because of the environment that we're in. And that goes not just for our brains, but also for our bodies, you know, how we choose to live, uh, whether we live sedentary lifestyles or active lifestyles. All of these things have a profound impact on who we are. And all of these things are shaped by culture and the environment. So I think um, it's a mistake to think of genes as, and biology as somehow being separate from everything else. They are all intertwined, not to mention these ideas, which I don't go into because it's a very nascent field, but epigenetics, so this yeah. new field that is kind of treading into the territory of trying to explain whether effects can last into generations, genetic effects can last into generations, whether genetic changes happen within your lifetime. I think it's too early to speculate on the nature of those changes. But what we do know is that we are not static creatures. Mm -hmm. um, we are always changing. And if there's one thing that makes humans different from other species, I would say it's our ability to change, mm. our adaptability, our variability. 
Um, and this is why it's so difficult to get to the heart of the puzzle of human nature. What is human nature? It really depends on who you're studying and what time you're studying them in. It varies so much. People on this planet live in so many different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some societies that are very egalitarian. There are some societies that are very patriarchal or hierarchical. Mm. Um, there are some societies in which... Um, Diets are completely different. Habits are completely different. There are so many different ways of living. And that's not because we humans come in different forms. It's because we are able to adapt and create cultures in so many different varieties. So we've all tried to measure progress in humanity, right? And one of the big slippery slopes has been genetics, trying to measure it by trying to enhance Um, breeding with the best uh, and the survival of the fittest and Darwin and all of that. But I, I think we can both agree that we all want the best for humanity. That's, that's the biggest thing. And what's counterintuitive of eugenics is that we thought that the best have to breathe. And, and I, it's quoting uh, Galton, and I'm not saying this. The best, the Aryans have to breathe with Aryans to produce the best or for the Jews, Ashkenazi Jews have to breathe with themselves to become better or with India, they can reproduce with themselves only. So it is rather counterintuitive, right? The, the, the idea of breathing ourselves to perfection that we can be, if we diversify ourselves a lot, it strengthens ourselves. And we, we, we can see that happening in nature as well with bananas. You know, there's reports that one virus can kill the whole plant bananas and it's very interesting yeah i mean um so there's loads of different threads there but i think what it comes down to is genetics you know how how do we frame our ideas about what our genes do for us and how we can possibly improve them now the idea of progression that the human race is or the human species is somehow improving over time is a construction in itself. We are not improving. All we are is adapted to the environment that we live in. Um, we're particularly well adapted because we are one of those few species that change our environment to suit us rather than us changing to suit the environment. So, you know, that's our big skill. That's what allows us to live wherever we want uh, on the planet pretty much. Um, and, So this idea that you can somehow enhance or improve people is a total misnomer. We are suited already to the environment that we live in. Mm -hmm. Whatever genetic changes or evolutionary changes happen to us now will only be there to adapt us further. It won't be there. Whatever ideas we have or values that we have about improvement really are a product of the society that we live in, you know, what we value. Now, Here in the UK where I live or in Europe, one of the big values is intelligence. You know, this was the beam that we can breed for beauty and intelligence in particular. And one of the big things that eugenicists in the UK did in the early 20th century was they went out and they invented IQ tests. They invented intelligence testing in order to get to the heart of who are the smart people who are not the smart people in the assumption that this smartness would travel through generations. Yes. Now, there is a genetic component to intelligence, as we call it. We can't capture all of what we think of as intelligence because it's such a huge, broad, difficult to pin down kind of idea. But 
in as much as in some countries we test it in a certain way, we can correlate that with certain genetic uh, qualities or certain uh, gene variants. And then we can draw inferences from that about some people having these more than others and then this being heritable. Now, even the most optimistic estimates put the heritability of intelligence at about 50%. Hmm. And that is only if you are raised in an environment where you have all your needs taken care of, where you have all the nutrition and the food that you need, where, you're, where you have um, stimulation, intellectual stimulation, where a child has everything they need. Bear in mind that most children on the planet do not have those things, number one. Um, for children of the lowest socioeconomic groups, heritability of intelligence can fall to as low as zero. So the genes really make no difference at that point. You know, it's all, it's all everything else that's wow. making a difference in their lives at that point. So I think when we talk about improvement and genetics and all of these things, what we're doing is assuming that genes are somehow some kind of blueprint yes. that define in a fatalistic way, define everything that you're ever going to be. And that's just not true. It's not true. In fact, the world wouldn't look the way it did if that was the case. We know that richer kids do better in life. This isn't because they have better genes. It's because they have all the opportunities and all the, you know, all the inputs that they need to become those great people. And when we, when we resort to genetics as an explanation for why some people do better than others, uh, what we're really doing is um, being fatalistic. What we're saying is that there's nothing we can do for everybody else, that there is something in that child that at the moment they're born will determine who they become. And I, I just don't buy that. One, because the science doesn't back it up. And two, because our experience doesn't back it up. You put it perfectly right now. And in your book, you say that if you plant two seeds in different uh, bases, one with great rich soil and the other with dry soil, both will come out very differently, evidently. And I can see your point. It's a slippery slope when we do that, because as you say, if, if progress is a construct, then we're doing it ourselves and we don't have a guideline. So everyone has their own definition of progress. And what's happening with genetics is that how should we define progress? Because it clearly creates an effect on on the policies we make, on how we treat others and how should how we define other people. And the other thing that you put perfectly is when you interview Kaufman in your book that you say that the, the, the biggest risk of it is that we try to use genetics to hide ourselves and just justify that some people are are poor because they were born prone to be poor rather than saying we can create change in their lives by educating them better. No? So... Yeah, and there are still researchers out there who are looking at the genetics of poor people and rich people, for instance, people in poorer areas and wealthier areas, and trying to draw some kind of conclusions about why poor people are poor and why rich people are rich, which I just, I find bizarre. It's like a hundred, it's so old fashioned as a, as a way of doing research, or even as a question to be asking, um, because it really takes us back to that old eugenic um argument that certain people live the way they do not because of all the different other circumstances that might 
be there in their lives, but because there's something deep down inside, there's some kind of kernel that makes them more feckless or more lazy or less smart or more criminally prone. Um, We need to move away from that. And also we need to ask ourselves, when we talk about perfection, what do we actually mean and what do we actually want? Yes. You know, what do I think of as perfection is not necessarily what the next person does. And what we as a society value, I think, we have to be very careful about what we assume would be the best possible traits in our kids. For me, even more than intelligence or even more than beauty or height or you know whatever other trait someone would want to select in their embryo mm-hmm. i would want that person to be good good natured you know mm-hmm. kind can we why do i never hear geneticists or eugenicists talking about those qualities it's very interesting why do we never as a society value kind of generosity or modesty or these other virtues um we are looking for things that make us more productive that kind of lift us up in the hierarchy that is a game that is all a game i think and it's not necessarily the qualities we actually want in people to build a better society yes yes the the big theme is that we've we've associated progress with industrialization and, and and as you say production which is evident that we measure things by GDP and output. And what's counterintuitive about that is that more people tend to suicide on the developed countries than in developing countries. So the, the happiness measurement is, is something we, it's interesting to see because there is a disconnect between what we think of, of what's progress and what actually is. And, and that's, that's a very philosophical conversation because we are all in this game together trying to make the best out of life. So, and the definitions of progress can vary. I think this gets to the heart of what we need to resolve in the future. I think we've got to a point where capitalist democracy has for so long presented this kind of promise that actually hasn't worked for most people. Inequality is rising. So many people have mental health issues, a depression, like you say, rates of suicide, especially among young men in this country are huge. Yeah. They're so high. People are unhappy. Um, we know that the system isn't working, and yet we don't have any alternatives. We haven't really thought about anything else. I mean, for a long time, all we had was communism and capitalism. We have to be able to think beyond both of those options and just ask, actually, what society do we want to create in order to live happier, healthier lives? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what we'll come up with. I really I really don't. But I don't think the answer lies, for example, in old-fashioned pseudoscientific ideologies like eugenics i don't think it lies in transhumanism or anything like that i think it lies in coming up with systems that work for everyone rather than hierarchies which traditionally have served only the elites we have to think about ways that work for everybody yes yes and we're getting into a very very difficult conversation because often we we've associated economic systems with ideologies right so either you're are you're red or you're capitalist you know and the, the, there's division and and that's a big theme also in in superior in in, in the way you 
you offer this new perspective about how we should think of the genetics and the future it holds, that ideologies are very embedded in the way we're doing research. And that's, that's a thing that when I read it, it, it kind of broke my heart because at the end of the day, I'm a 21-year-old, right? And I, I don't want to live in a world where all of my scientific journals and everything that I read has to come up with some sort of, of agenda to serve, right? So how do you think we can prevent, you know, publicizing ideologies, but keep also an open mind and at the same time offer truth and not just an agenda? It's difficult. I think truth is um, more possible in certain fields than others. I think when we're talking about human biology or human nature, it's very difficult to get to the heart of that problem because we are always changing mm -hmm. and we live in so many different ways. Um, so biologists, anthropologists, ethnologists for decades and decades have tried to get to the heart of these questions and always failed um, because The second, it's like jelly. The second you think you've got a grip on it, it just slips through your fingers um, because we're always changing. And that's why I think it's so easy for um, biases and ideologies to get imposed on the questions that we ask and the data that we have and the theories then we then, that we then present to people, mm -hmm. especially in the absence of evidence, when we don't have very much evidence. For example, when we're talking about the ancient past, we have very little evidence about the ancient past. And so there's so much speculation and it's heavily loaded with politics, um, some you know, ideas about supremacy or progress or primitiveness or lots of different um, notions about what the past represented and what it means um, that are shaped by how we think today in the politics that we're in. And I don't think we'll ever stop doing that because that's the nature of being human. We, you know, we grow in a society. We are committed to the societies that we live in. We're committed to the frameworks that are around us. It's very difficult to completely step outside that and imagine what life would be like without any of that. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. We just can't do it. We are so molded in a certain way to think in certain ways. Um, so I wonder if the only answers then is one for science to be as diverse as possible, have as many different ideas, many people from many different backgrounds um, in terms of gender and um, uh, geography and class background, you know, to get a really broad, diverse understanding to these questions. Um, and another thing is that I think scientists need to understand history. One thing you don't get, I don't know what it's like where you live, but certainly in the UK, um, children specialize quite early in what they want to do. So around the age of 16 or 18, you will decide what you want to study and you may never study anything else. So for example, I studied engineering at university. I wrote one essay in that entire four years. And even then I didn't get any training in history or social sciences or anything. I was just expected to write it. Um, and that's not good enough because all the ideas that we have, all the scientific concepts that we have come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And if we don't understand where they come from, we'll just keep replicating them. We'll just keep continuing in the same fashion, even if there are mistakes there. Mm -hmm. So once we understand the background and the frameworks and the context 
of our scientific ideas, then I think we're in a position to challenge them. Yes, definitely. And at the end of the uh, at the end of the day, everything that we're kind of um, showing evidence of has to come up with some interpretation of data, right? So every everyone has an interpretation. And my question would be: so where should we draw the line between speculation and legitimate interpretation? How how can we differentiate between them? It's really tough. So at the moment, of course, we're in the middle of this COVID-19 crisis. And what I've seen is lots of speculation based on the patterns that we've seen. We don't have very much data yet um, because the pandemic hasn't played out fully. Um, A lot of um, the patterns of diseases, incidents that we've seen, some of it is down to luck. You know, one person gets on a flight, catches it, goes to their particular part of the world and spreads it. So it's not necessarily that that particular part of the world is more susceptible. It's just that that one person happened to, you know, through a chain of events, land in a place that spread it to lots of different people. So I've seen loads of people wondering, you know, for example, are black people more susceptible to this virus? Are other minorities more susceptible to this virus? Are men more susceptible? Um, Loads of kind of pet theories that people have, based on not a huge amount of data, (laughs) I have to say, not a huge amount of evidence. So, for example, in this country, in the early days of the pandemic, we saw that it was disproportionately affecting people, um, black and ethnic minorities, black and Asian people. People forget that um, the first place to be heavily hit by COVID in this country was London, where I live. London is minority white. Why would you expect more white cases in a city where the majority of people are not white. Wow. You know, just by demographics, you would expect um, different patterns from the rest of the population. Now, what we've seen is over time, as the disease has spread across the country, where the demographics are very different, those figures have balanced out. You get fewer rates of incidence between black and ethnic minority people and more incidence in white people mm-hmm. because the demographics in the rest of the country are different. So I think we have to kind of, rather than having these kind of quick hot takes because it's fashionable or because the media demands it or because your research demands it, wait and see. If you don't have evidence and you don't have data, you don't have to offer an opinion. (laughs) You can just wait and see. Um, And I worry sometimes that scientists are a little too quick to speculate and a little too slow to just wait and see. What should biology cover? and what it shouldn't, and how this affects directly to the studies of race. Where do you think biology has a saying, and where do you think it doesn't have a say? Well, race is not a biological thing. It is a social construct. Um, That's very difficult for people to accept because we see correlations between physical appearance and race. Mm -hmm. It's never perfect, which is why we all we so often have to ask someone, where are you from? If it was perfect, we'd never need to ask that question. Mm-hmm. Right? We'd always know just by looking at somebody. Yeah. But um, the reason scientists and, and social scientists say that race is a social construct is because it, these categories that we use were always arbitrary. They were always kind of made up based on the limited information that people had about human beings two, three hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. And we still use those categories now. You know, the basic things, black, white, brown, 
yellow, red. Those ideas are hundreds of years old and they have no more basis now than they did then. Mm -hmm. um, there is no genetic commonality here. There is no black gene. There is no white gene. You can't actually even reliably 100% tell someone's skin color from testing their DNA. Yes. We have so much in common. Yes. You, you, you mentioned, sorry to interrupt, but this was a mind blower when you talked. Uh, I, I, I can't understand this, that this actually happened with Hefnery. In the first chapter, you mentioned this, this person who, who was categorized as white and he had to to fight it in court that he well, was this, well this is how arbitrary these ideas are so um caucasian which is the kind of polite word that we use to describe white people right in some societies caucasian as defined by um this kind of enlightenment naturalist johann blumenbach centuries ago he defined them as everyone from western europe to north india and that meant for a very long time Egypt, North Africa, was included in that Caucasian category. In fact, I'm included in that Caucasian category. I'm clearly not white, mm -hmm. but I would be included in that Caucasian category. Um, and this means that in the US, which uses that Caucasian definition for whiteness, that Egyptian immigrants to the US are automatically categorized as white. Wow. Well, they're not all white. <laughs> Egyptians come in many different sh shades and colors. Yes. And there are some Egyptians which to uh, American eyes, US eyes, look black. And yet they are officially categorized as white. That just goes to show the kind of arbitrariness of this. Mm -hmm. You can be categorized as black in one country, white in another country, colored in another country, mixed race in another country. It's all really just political and social expediency. Whatever yeah. categories have social value in the place that you're in, those are the ones that are used in the place that you're in. There's no kind of biological sense to any of this. When I apply for a job, for example, or, you know, when I apply, when I need to fill out some medical form or anything, they ask what race I am. So how should I navigate that question now that race is evidently a, a part of, of life? It's tough. I mean, there's two layers to this. One is that, um, obviously, ra these racial categories, these socially defined racial categories, have incredible power in the real world, in the societies that we live in. They define how we are treated by other people. They define sometimes your life expectancy. You know, if you're a black American, the chances are your life expectancy will be lower. Yeah. So um, we need this data in order to map how discrimination and racism play out, which is why so many countries collect this data, mm -hmm. um, why it matters to so many places. Um, at the same time, what we have to be careful of is not conflating those kind of social census categories with anything biological. We are, as a species, remarkably homogeneous. We're more homogeneous than chimpanzees, even. Mm -hmm. you know, We're hom more homogeneous than most species. Um, and that kind of universal basic humanity we have to keep in mind even when we're ticking these census forms. The other issue is, of course, that um, it's getting harder and harder to find the right box for everyone. You know, it's easier for me because my parents are both from one region of the world and their ancestors go back there a long way, so it's easy for me to define where I'm from. But if you're mixed race or mixed heritage, It becomes more difficult. And then you can have many generations of mixed heritage people. And then what, what do you tick? 
after that you know what are you supposed to do in the uk we have this kind of mixed race category which conceivably in the future will be the majority of people you know everybody will be mixed heritage of some sort and have to tick that box and then what meaning does it have it loses all meaning you know it doesn't it doesn't tell you anything anymore so um and I don't mean biological meaning because none of these have biological meaning in the first place, but even social meaning. It loses social meaning at that point um, because you could be mixed race in a, in a million different ways. <laughs> There's no one way of being mixed race. Yeah. Um, so I think this is something we'll have to kind of grapple with as we move forward. The issue is we can't do away with the categories completely because if we do that, then we become blind to the way that racism works in society. We have to be able to identify the schisms and how inequality plays, which is why we collect this data. At the same time, the data itself is becoming less and less useful because we are so mixed. That's that's my biggest concern, right? So on one hand, we have to study these things because clearly – Racism is an issue. And on the other, once we do it, it tends to give power to those who are on the extremes. It is evident that people in the United States, more specifically black people, tend to be killed by police more than white. It's, it's evidence. And if we hypothetically stop filling the blank what race was him or her, then... Then we'll never know. Yes. Then it it is equivalent to saying, well, he's just a person and that's that's a a loophole where people who are legitimate racists would say, well, it can happen to all of us because we're people. So it's... it's Yeah. Yeah, it's really tough. And this is something I struggle with as well because um, identity politics, it's become quite a toxic phrase but at the root of identity politics is this idea that certain groups of people as socially defined have been uh, disadvantaged in society. And in order to uh, restore their advantage and put them on an even playing field with everybody else, we have to recognize them. We have to empower them. We have to sometimes celebrate them. If they've been if they've been deemed inferior over many generations and we have to celebrate them as well which is something that you see particularly in the united states in kind of black empowerment narratives Um, and we need that we can't ignore the need for that because when you've had many centuries of narratives about white supremacy and white superiority then you need to restore that somehow the question is how do you balance that with the equally important narrative for me of universal humanity, exactly. that we are all the same underneath, is these are not easy things to live side by side. But I think, I think maybe we live in an age, particularly with social media, this is one of the reasons I left social media actually, is that we demand simple binary narratives for everything. We, we demand that everything be simple, one or another. And actually life doesn't work that way. We need a little bit of everything. We, mm-hmm. need to, we need to be able to maintain in our heads the importance of identity politics at the same time as the limitations of identity politics. And that is fine. That is how life works. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, another thing is we need to maintain this idea that, yes, there is such a thing as human variation, but that doesn't mean that race is real. 
You know, mm. these are these also feel like contradictory things, but they're not. It's perfectly possible for those two things to be true. Um, and I think that nuance is missing in the modern news cycle or the social media cycle because of our desperate need for kind of sound bites and simple yes. phrases and, yes. you know, basic things. And I hope that we move beyond that and accept that actually everything is a little bit more complicated than that. I, yes, that's, thank you for, for saying that. And how do we start paving the road towards that future where we can cross, where we can, you know, put limits on things and enhance other things and empower certain people and try to remove power to people who, who actually their intentions are created more harm. The solutions I try to, or I see feasible is talking about things, freedom of expression, you know, sharing things and th these kinds of platforms where I can converse with you for an extended time without trying to catch the perfect thing. It, it, it's important, but at the same time, things and uh, conflicting viewpoints will have to be, to be talked with one another, right? So my question here is, should we, we understand that there are racists in the world. That's a fact. And should we stop talking about issues that will empower these people? Oh, again, it's very tricky because I think um, on the far right, on the extreme right, uh, people have used freedom of speech, abused freedom of speech as a means to gain uh, outsized platforms for themselves, disproportionate mm -hmm. platforms for themselves. And this is one of the reasons, one of the very many reasons that um, populism and xenophobia have spread so quickly around the world. Mm -hmm. They've been so clever at claiming that narrative, at claiming the territory of free speech. Now, I'm not denying them their right to their free speech if they want it. Different countries have different ways of dealing with it. In the US, free speech is absolute. In the UK where I live, we have hate speech laws, mm -hmm. which means that if you incite racial or religious or sexual hatred, uh, there are laws to prevent you from doing that and you can be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. um, it's difficult because I firmly am one of those people who believe we have to listen to everybody. We have to talk to everybody. And in fact, in my last two books, in, in Inferior and Superior, this is what I did. I interviewed some people yes. who are scientific racists who hold very different political views from me mm -hmm. and very different political views from other people that I've interviewed, you know, on the other ends of the spectrum. Um, and I think what I've come to in my own life, and I don't know if this will work for everybody, but it works for me, is uh, empathy. If you can understand that bias is not something that only exists in other people, but also exists in yourself, mm -hmm. then you can start to empathize with people who, who may hold very different views from you. I don't think anyone is born hating other people. Mm -hmm. I don't think xenophobia is kind of innate in babies, for instance. I think we learn these things because of the societies that we're in. We may, I don't know, be predisposed to group people or categorize. I don't know. That may or may not be true. We just don't have the evidence to prove either way. But what I do know is that everybody comes to where they 
come to in their lives through a process of experiences and ideas that they've been fed. I have my own ideas that I've been raised with. I grew up in a very egalitarian family. That is one of the reasons I have the perspective on the world that I do, because I've seen what it's like to live in a family in which everybody does everything. There is no division of the sexes. There is no, that you know, there may be prejudices, but certainly not as many prejudices as I see out in the wider world. And that has led me to where I am. Mm -hmm. There are other things that lead people to where they are. And I've tried very hard in my work to understand that. Where, how did they get to where they are? So personally, I feel like, although it's important to catalogue and recognise racism in society, discrimination, to see where groups or individuals are being persecuted unfairly. We mm -hmm. need to protect them. We always need to protect the most vulnerable in society. I think what we also need to do is recognise that bias is not, and racism is not, something that only exists in other people. It's not just those people over there. It is something we are all raised with. Yes. It is something to live in society is to be exposed to racism or at least racist ideas from a very young age. And if we can recognize our own biases, then, then maybe we'll do a better job of moving beyond this kind of culture of hatred that we have at the moment. Yes. I, I, there's this proverb that says that to be free of ignorance, you must recognize it first. And I think that's, I agree with you. It's not so, easy. <laughs> it isn't. And it's often yeah. hurtful, you know, to say, yeah. yeah, I'm usually seeing this the way that that's the whole purpose of this, of this podcast, you know, try to keep the, the most open mind as possible. And uh, you, you put it perfectly. Everyone comes from a certain place. Everyone, no, no one here. That that's one of my my biggest you know life philosophies. No one was born with a recipe of how to deal with existence and being conscious. You know, and we as this is a good take from this interview because I didn't know that we were so we had so much plasticity in us. You know, and that's amazing. It, it means that we we're here as as we are shaped by our experiences we're here to live those experiences and people are created through those and that's amazing i have i, I need to, to to ask you what is truth because truth in the world war ii was you know there's only one race that needed to survive truth right now is we need progress i hate to say it because you know the scientist's answer would be that we can achieve objective truth about everything that one day we will be able to uh, explain pretty much everything and i do subscribe to that ideal but i think in real life on an everyday level in the way that society plays out truth is really in the eye of the beholder sometimes this is really about where you stand ultimately what truth you're choosing to accept what facts you're choosing to live by what you're choosing to reject and how you're choosing to live your life. And the truth is that however, the truth is, however um, much science is an endeavor that aims to get to the truth, in practice, we have to understand that politics and society and culture don't operate always 
on the basis of evidence and facts. Um, and we need a we need a better understanding of that as well. Maybe it's a psychological question. Maybe it's a philosophical question. Um, for me personally, and this is um, where I landed when I was writing Superior. I think it's more about a question of narratives. What narratives do we pay? Do we paint about who we are, and who we want to be? And if you paint, for example, a very nationalist narrative about exceptionalism or about supremacy or superiority of one group over another, then you will very quickly find that the evidence will start to serve that narrative. Whoever has that evidence. We saw this happen in Nazi Germany. We've seen it happen so many different times in various countries in the world. So I think we need to ask ourselves fundamentally, not just about valuing evidence and facts, which, are, which is important, but also about creating narratives that are inclusive, that value all human life, and that recognize our universal humanity. Yes, and that's, that was another question that I had, is that we, we often think that evidence moves narratives, but it is clear that narratives have moved the evidence to, to fit that particular idea. And that's, that's, yeah, they always have. From yeah. the very birth of modern science, from Enlightenment science onwards, you will see that theories, categories, our racial categories, everything was serving particular narratives, political, political narratives at that particular point in time. And it is still doing that. Mm -hmm. We don't always see it because we're inside this world now, we're inside this time. Mm -hmm. So we're occupying that narrative and we don't, we won't, we don't have the benefit of hindsight, mm -hmm. but we will see it in the future. And I think what we need, like I said, is to build better narratives. Could we separate, we, could we truly separate politics from science? Is it possible? No, I don't think it's possible. I think science is inherently political and that goes all the way from funding. So who gets to study the sciences, who is funded to to look at certain questions. Uh, what is the science there for? I mean, this is becoming a bigger and bigger question as funding becomes limited, is do we want science for the sake of truth or do we want science that serves political agendas and people? And, you know, at the moment we're racing towards a vaccine. All this effort is going towards this vaccine. Yes. That is about funding. That is about priorities. So I think science is always political at every single stage. Wow, that's. I understand it. It's hard to to <laughs> to come to terms with, you know, because we. It is it is funny, you know, that if me personally and other people have have regarded scientists as people who don't have any prejudice, any biases, any interests from themselves, right? So they're they're the like the good guys in the fight, when actually they're also people and people you know, tend to have their own viewpoints, tend to have their own um, lens of how they see the world. And that's, yes. it, it's they're hard. They're just to, human. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's, they're just human. That's, and, it, and it's difficult and to accept. And that's not a bad thing because it's humans that came up with empiric, empiricism and the methods and the tools and all these wonderful things that we have yes, in exactly. order to explore the world that we do. Uh, it's not a bad thing that we have bias or, prejudice or anything if that's you know part of what it means to be human um but we can't pretend then to be objective all the time if we're not because then that only skews reality 
Exactly. It, gives, it doesn't give us a clearer picture. Yes, one thing that just just um, talking out loud is a good idea for it for for us to just trying to and for me for to just seeing scientists as you know people who don't have prejudices is just what if they disclose their funding? What if they disclose their interests? Or because they they sometimes they they don't, or most times they don't. I think when I see research, it's not saying that I'm doing research that says. Uh, Tobacco is good for you, and I'm and I am not disclosing that I'm funded by, you know, tobacco company. <laughs> we, we don't see that. I mean, they really should. I, there <laughs> is. I've written pay, I've written articles for academic journals, and there's always uh, a form that they give you to disclose your whatever financial interests you have. So you should really disclose it. But of course, we know that not everybody does. We oh, know no. that there are other, yeah, not just uh, personal interests, but sometimes political interests, or you know, things that you may not necessarily want to disclose or need to disclose operating behind the agenda. And I think prejudice is one of those interests. Yes. It's one of those things we don't declare, but we all have. I mean, it's, it's tricky, right? When I, I imagine myself, you know, feeling the, the, the lines that says, what, what are your prejudices? And, you know, put it that way. And I would feel, you know, bad, just accepting them and saying that doesn't give me, that doesn't put me in the best position to land the job, for example, but <laughs> it's yeah, something we have to explore. And, and honestly, yeah. if we, if we do, if we do want to, to help improve everyone's life, not just someone's lives, it, it's going to take a good hard look in the mirror and say, here's the deal. And, but, but collectively, because what if, I disclose my information, and then no one else does. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of problems with science at the moment in terms of hierarchies and promotion and how it's structured in a way to serve sometimes people at the top rather than in, in a kind of more democratic way, everybody in, in the system. Yeah. And there are a lot of egos there there are there you know there are a lot of vested interests in this business it is a business we have to remember that science is also a business and when you understand it that way when you frame it that way which is you know my job as a science journalist my job is not just to kind of explain the science to people it's mm -hmm. also to go behind the business of science and explain the kind of messy workings in the background um which i think don't undermine science all they do is illuminate it and help us understand actually why scientists sometimes get things wrong mm -hmm, exactly that i want to see more research papers that said you know we couldn't we couldn't uh confirm our hypothesis nor we couldn't uh reject it we're open for collaboration we're open for know someone to take have their taken but usually journals don't publish papers that don't have a conclusive answer right well we've we've covered a lot <laughs> a lot of topics regarding pretty much everything that surrounds the book superior i think everything here is is relevant to the book and how 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 do you see the future of of genetics of everything unfolding there is one um scenario playing out right now that i think for me highlights how the last century has been 
a little bit too focused on genes and not enough focused on everything else, not just biological systems, but other systems. Mm -hmm. There are many systems that contribute to who we are. So for example, I've noticed very many geneticists and many, very many researchers um, who want to look at genetic data to understand why some people get COVID and not others. But who do we see the biggest differences between in terms of um, susceptibility, death and illness? It is not between racial groups. It's not even among gender. It's between age. Mm. It's young people and old people. Now, as far as I'm aware, your genes do not change between you being young and you being old. So what value is there then <laughs> in putting so much effort into looking at genetic differences when yeah. it's an age difference that we're looking at here? There must be something else going on if it's an age differential that really determines the rates of death. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this kind of heavy focus on genetics, 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 all the time as though genetics can explain everything. We really have to move away from that and look for other aspects of our biology to understand who we are. It's, it's, it's very important to understand that there is not a black or white scenario. There's usually gray areas and usually right now the world is very complex and we've seen it in a macro scale with a pandemic. Everyone is in their house. So we couldn't, we, we can't say that, you know, there's an isolated region. Everyone is affected by things. And if we wanted to, to connect the world in a globalized way, we need to acknowledge that all of the things have to be connected as well. So there's not, not so many isolated things. I, I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And is, is there anything else you want to share us with, with the audience, with our listeners? with me <laughs> <laughs> well i do hope people read superior and try and absorb it i'm often asked um you know what is the one argument you have to kind of demolish race race or demolish this or you know to convince people the fact is there's no simple argument here it's a very slow process of understanding and reading and really getting to the heart of it and if i could have made superior any shorter i would have but I couldn't. No. This is how much you need in yeah. order to get to where you need to be. Yes, definitely. And it, for me, it was, you know, very, an eye-opener, honestly. It showed me that this is an issue that has too many angles, too many perspectives. And I admire that you interviewed so many people with so many perspectives that sometimes conflict with, with yours. And you honestly said it in the book, which is... I admire it and I thought that I mentioned it throughout the interview it was it's been amazing to to get this new perspective and I I thank you for it I thank you for writing this book oh, I appreciate it thanks for having me on your podcast and thanks. good luck as you cope with this crisis as we're coping with the crisis yeah, likewise I'll, I'll stay in touch and thank you so much take care you're very welcome. Take care. Bye then. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Through Conversations Podcast. If you find this episode interesting, don't miss out on new conversations and subscribe to the podcast at any podcast feed you use and leave me a review. Also, consider sharing it with someone you think can enjoy this episode. Our new awesome music is by Joe Lyle. More info can be found at joelyledrums.com. Hosted and produced by Alex Levy.